We're live. My guest today is Greg Osuri, CEO of Overclock and founder of the Akash Network. Today, we're doing a deep dive into Akash, how it works, and why it's an important part of the future of cloud computing. We're also going to talk about, honestly, what I think is the most exciting thing happening on Akash, which is that they will soon offer GPUs, and that will enable all sorts of applications in machine learning and large language models, which, of course, are all the hype right now. We'll also spend some time looking at the GPU market and unpacking what's going on there. AI plus blockchains, all the buzzwords today. Um, we'll also be talking about his views on the broader Cosmos ecosystem. I'm also dying to find out why he thinks decentralized experiences are better than centralized ones. So if you enjoy this content, please consider sticking with us. We're validating on FMOS, Quicksilver, Osmosis, and Juno. Just look for Interop in the active set. And if you're in Paris this summer, I'd love it if you come to Nebula Summit. It's the Interchain Builders Conference that's happening on July 24th and 25th. It'll be two days of technical talks about Cosmos, IBC, and the Interchain. No panels, no suits, just tech talks. The second batch of early bird tickets just went up. You can get those at nebular.builders. My guest, Greg Wasuri, is coming up next, right here on the Interop. Hey, Greg. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Seb. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a while since we're trying to plan this. I'm, I'm glad it's finally happening. And it feels like uh, it was good to wait because like there's a lot going on uh, in Akash. And um, yeah, uh, I you know, would love to kind of deep, deep dive into um, the technical underpinnings of Akash, but also all this work you guys are doing in the GPU space. So yeah, for people who are not familiar with Akash, can you give us a high level overview of the vision and what does the product look like today? Absolutely. So um, I know it's, I think Akash has always something going on and, but this is definitely the most important moment for Akash. Uh, so we are a perfect time. For those of you that don't know what Akash is, it's essentially what we call a super cloud. A, a super cloud is a, um, a, a cloud, uh, some could say it's evolution of how we look at the cloud. Essentially, uh, the idea behind it is there's so much heterogeneous compute, uh, right, all over the world. Um, and if there's a way to federate this compute and give a homogenous experience to, uh, uh, to a developer or a builder, uh, we can uh, use these compute resources in a more efficient way. So Akash is the first super cloud and only decentralized super cloud. We, um, the uh, research for Akash has been you know, happening for quite a lot. Really, it began with, uh, with Cornell writing the paper on super cloud and, and uh, the Overclock Labs team uh, taking the paper and extending that and adding the, the marketplace component to it and making it permissionless and decentralized, right? So uh, right now, Akash, um, uh, is a uh, functioning platform and uh, you know several Cosmos projects, including Osmosis, Mars, and quite a lot of Juno, Stargaze, and all these incredible projects. Uh, you know are deployed on Akash in some form or the other. And uh, we are right now. Uh, you know we progress quite a lot, and Akash also happens to be the first IBC chain, right? If you remember, 
the first IBC transaction happened between Cosmos and uh, and, and Akash Network. Uh, and uh, we're also one of the first few projects to adopt Tendermint uh, in 2018. So we've been, you know, in the Cosmos ecosystem for a very, very, very long time. Um, also, Osmosis pool number three and four are, are Akash, right? So if you remember those days uh, of 3,000 percent APR. So we had a yeah. quite a lot of uh, good journey, old <laughs> journey, good old <laughs> device, well, the good old days. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've been along uh, and now we are on a pinnacle of the most important uh, important upgrade uh, for Akash Network, introducing something called the GPUs. We're pretty sure we'll get into that very soon. Uh, and that's, uh, that's in a nutshell what Akash is. Yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more later about how uh, teams in the Cosmos ecosystem are using Akash and how they're leveraging it. I, I So I use Akash a little bit like, um, I guess last year, uh, I, I was hosting a bunch of websites on there, like my personal website and the Interop Ventures website, and and I really enjoyed it. I mean, it 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 felt really good to be able to deploy a website to like a decentralized compute compute cloud and um, just point your you know your Cloudflare to to that link, and it just it just worked. The the issue that I was kept running into is that I would go to my website once in a while and it would just be gone and, and I didn't know why or for how long it had been gone. And I think probably after looking into it now, those resources that might have been reclaimed by the uh, by the people providing the infrastructure, you know, that that seems like a, a UX problem that, um, you know, kind of sucks, <laughs> you know, if you have like resources up there and, and they're and they're they're falling out uh, off the network. Um, what, what kinds of, what, what's the biggest challenges that you guys have when, uh, it, you know, in terms of managing all these resources, like how difficult is that? Uh, so I mean, it's a very good point. So Akash is in such early stages, right? It is purely non-custodial. One of the most important aspects of our network is, uh, uh the non-custodial nature as well as the open source nature of it, right? Uh, the challenge with non-custodial interfaces uh, being a pioneer is we don't have engagement infrastructure for the user that you're used to in Web2, like notifications or auto uh, renewals of uh, things of that nature, right? Auto deployments and things of that nature. Uh, even though the platform works as, as advertised, the UX hasn't quite caught up. Um, and the challenge is really doing it in a non-custodial way. And... Um, you know, some platforms take the shortcuts. They actually offer custodial solutions to offset some of the non-custodial capabilities. But Akash has been very, very uh, uh, strong in holding to the values of non-custodial nature. And that's reason why, uh, you know, your website probably went down. Our biggest challenge right now is churn. Right? So we get adoption, but we also have quite a lot of people leaving. And there are two primary reasons for that. Biggest reason, I would say 90% of the time is because the uh, deployment runs out of funds, and the deployer, the tenant, has no idea that the uh, they need to renew, and there's no email addresses to to email them or notifications. So, I mean, perhaps you're you, you ran out of funds in your in your escrow account, and then you don't you don't even realize that because you're probably not monitoring that, right? Yeah. Uh, second big challenge is reclamation, right? So providers can reclaim resources. 
in a scenario like a website which doesn't have state, it should automatically deploy to a new uh, new uh, provider if you set it up that way. But most people don't. Most people just deploy a Docker container uh, and forget about it. So yes, there are a lot of these like small small nuances, and majority of them sort of like cause this churn, right? Even the platform works as, as advertised. <laughs> Uh, and those issues are getting solved very, very quickly. And they're getting solved in, a, in an open and distributed manner. That means the team that created Akash Network is not the only one solving these problems, but there are 10 other teams, be it Fleek, be it Speron, be it CloudMoss, Praetor, and there are a lot of these applications that are addressing these uh, capabilities of pitfalls in their own way. Some non-custodial, some custodial, and that's the beauty of an open cloud. And... Um, and another, uh, from a uh, churn standpoint, uh, you know, we, you know, if we control the churn, we will see net positive growth. Uh, but also from a uh, from a um, uh, on ramping or like uh, you know uh, using the platform or converting the platform, uh, converting a non user to a user, the big challenge there happens to be uh, happens to be uh, getting access to tokens. Right, and this increasingly regulatory. Uh, realm which is extremely hostile uh it is impossible for has been so far impossible for us to provide credit card based payments uh, because it's a very regulated uh, uh space uh, and so far the experience using credit card on credit card systems has been subpar but now you have uh companies like stripe which we all use quite a lot and companies even to some degree cater money i've, I've seen a demo it, looks very, very promising, uh, are offering credit card on-ramps and uh, Akash soon will enable, uh, uh, you know, stable uh, settlements, right? And that's also been a challenge, especially for long-running workloads, uh, because, you know, you price the workload in EKT and EKT is volatile. And so on a, in a good enough period, you may actually lose money or gain money, depending on, 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 on how you're looking at it, but yeah. subpar experience, right? And I think... That has to be fixed. So these two, yeah, and you, and you get you guys are not the only ones sort of dealing with that problem. I think like it, it is a an experience problem that needs to get solved across you know the entire crypto ecosystem. Is how do you get access to to crypto? And there's always this onboarding problem. Um, you know, one question I want to ask you, like sort of as we maybe start diving in here, is like you know, public clouds are great, like. And AWS and you know, DigitalOcean and all these things are amazing. Um, why do we need a cash? Like, what is really the fundamental um, thing that you guys are trying to do, and what does that look like in a more long-term, you know, like five, ten-year vision? So, three main reasons. There are a lot of reasons why uh, decentralized systems, uh, you know, are weak. But in terms of uh, cloud, right? The first big challenge is as you scale out on a public cloud, you end up uh, uh, paying quite a lot more than what you should pay. So your expenses are outrageous. So if you look at any public filings from companies that were built on the cloud, like Netflix's or Dropbox's, even Asana's, you'll notice 50, over 50% 50 of the margins actually go to a cloud provider. And that's not sustainable in most cases. And there are indicate there's quite a lot of uh, uh, work done by companies like 37 Signals, companies uh, that actually came back from the cloud to a data center, um, saving quite a lot of money. But again, in a data center, the challenge is, you know, uh, 
underutilization. So uh, because of over provisioning, right? Because it takes quite a long, uh, you know, quite a lot of time to put a server on a data center, you tend to over provision and then you just sit on underutilized resources, right? So uh, that's one problem. And second problem is uh, the stifling of open source software. We all know what happens when uh, companies like Amazon uh, see a successful open source software and they tend to offer the, take away the core business model for these open source companies, which tends to be you know, hosting, right? So we see quite a lot of dampening uh, of revenues for these open source companies, data bricks included, and quite a lot of firings. And, and, and uh, you see quarterly reports as to, they, they have to address how, how do you deal with the Amazon threat, right? And the third main, um, uh, the third reason is anti-market forces. Right. So Amazon currently, Amazon Web Services is currently under investigation by U.S. government for uh, antitrust uh, uh, monopolistic behavior. And this is a natural sort of like cause of hyper concentration of power. Corruption always comes with power, even though the company may not have intentions to operate this way. It just nature and organic to have this concentration lead corruption. Right. So and the solution really is to. Uh, claim sovereignty. How do you get back the power that we gave? And, you know, through these anti-market forces also, you see censorship, right? So you see censorship both on political biases. Also, you see censorship on like business biases or business profits. Companies today uh, that are doing machine learning cannot get these GPUs, the high-end GPUs we call A100s and H100s on the cloud, unless you have a special deal with someone higher up in one of these cloud right so they selectively choose which business and which uh, you know company gets the resources thereby they selectively choose which company should be successful OpenAI got a big leg up because of this reason and that's not fair that's not fair to to a lot of the innovators uh, which is a foundation for our our economy and our society to get priced out out of these resources that's why we yeah. need a if you consider cloud to be the fabric that holds a society uh, we need this fabric to be open. We need this fabric to be governed in the public and resources allocated in the public uh, rather than a single corporation doing it in a complete opaque manner, right? And yeah, overall, and this, combined this, yeah. The, this idea of super cloud, I think, you know, which we'll talk a little bit, a little bit in the, in later on, I think kind of touches to that and, uh, you know, how do we best govern this, this infrastructure? Um, you know, what, one thing that I've one thing that I've sort of noticed over the years in, uh, covering crypto and, and being in the ecosystem is like there's been lots of projects that have attempted to do decentralized compute. Um, and, and, and then to some extent, you know, projects have tried to do decentralized storage. You know, those I think, you know, there, there are some signs of success there. But on the decentralized compute side, like we have projects like very early projects like Gollum. And and iExec, you know, they're based here in France, and I, I haven't followed up with those projects so much. But it feels like you know they're not massive successes, or like adoption is slow, and uh, you know they're 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 not like you're making headlines every day. Um, why do you think that is? Is it just like a timing thing? Or are we at a point now where it makes more sense, or was there something kind of fundamentally wrong with some of those earlier iterations of decentralized compute? Right, there are lots of things that went wrong with the earliest projects, and the main reason I would say is uh, over focus on technology than the market. Right, so a lot of these compute providers, be it Gollum, Gollum is a prime example, they over focused on verifiability uh, 
of compute, general purpose, tried to do a general purpose platform, but and then ended up being, building something that's not usable. Of course, they launched an Ethereum. We all know how that goes, right? Uh, you know, high gas fees to deploy a blog is not uh, okay in general, but you can't even deploy a blog. It's it's basically machine learning workflows. That's what they're focused on. But the challenge with Gollum was you have to rewrite your entire application to suit their framework, which is not the best framework. So they had to, well, fighting the non-custodial element it's in itself is extremely hard, but then trying to change uh, the source code base to suit a decentralized network for a value that's not very obvious, right, is very, very hard. So, um, so that caused failure. I think the the Gollum's usage is like seven dollars a week. They have no new users at all. It's just there. Uh, it's just a zombie project, right? Uh, IEXEC, on the other hand, went through a few iterations, but they began in very similar mode as uh, Gollum. But I think they've you know transitioned to more of a Docker base. Uh, they, they they're doing some work. I you know I haven't really seen any latest uh, successes, but IEXIC is very batch optimized, not necessarily latency sensitive. That means you cannot deploy a WordPress website with a MySQL backend on it. Yeah, uh, yeah. You can do batch workloads, right? And all the workloads are priced in public. It's a different model altogether. It's not a what you would consider your typical, you know, your application running on Amazon deploy onto to IEXIC, right? And Akash was a first general purpose platform in the sense you can take a container that's literally running on GCP or or, um, or um, Amazon, most likely if you're using something like a Docker Compose, you can take the Docker Compose file with some modifications deploy onto Akash, right? And that was a key innovation Akash like introduced and uh, and execution happens off-chain. We're not the first ones to do that, but you know we're the ones to sort of like really embrace that off-chain execution. And the... Um, chain becomes a coordination and a settlement mechanism at that point, right? So the chain becomes a very lightweight component and that goes away when you're interacting. So the look and feel really feels like a super cloud, right? That's really the, the, the idea. So you get a very homogenous, very familiar interface, Docker Compose style interface, where you have the resources very heterogeneous. And, uh, and, and uh, Akash also has this powerful... Um, um, uh, configuration language called SDL, which is like an orchestration language that lets you be extremely complex or extremely simple. It's very, very flexible language. And, um, and, uh, and you know, with that, we were, you know, hyper-focused on open source and community-first approach. Uh, so with that, we were able to have a good ecosystem of projects building on top of Akash that helps users adopt Akash, and that's that list is growing as well. So a lot of things went wrong with the early set of cloud computing projects that were very ambitious. And uh, the difference for Akash was we were very market focused. We were very uh, focused on what the user needs and what the market is asking for. It was very, very clear. It was not a verifiable general purpose compute. Verifiable compute was for deterministic compute, which makes sense. Uh, verifiable compute is very is impossible for general purpose compute. Right. So and, and yeah. we really took that and we introduced a reputation based system uh, and um, and a lot of other projects came after Akash that took that model and, uh, you know, had success as well. Cool. Yeah. So earlier we we're talking a little a little bit about 
So, you know, the user experience challenges that, that you guys are facing. And I mentioned at the top of the show that you, know, you thought that decentralized experience was better than centralized experiences. Uh, right. Why do you think that is? And, you know, I, I think some people would agree with you. Others would disagree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the non-custodial nature of the uh, system makes for extreme composability. Right. And uh, and also from a safety standpoint and and just the experience of logging and authenticating uh, in a non-custodial manner where you you know your information is not shared and you know exactly what kind of information is there right right now we use a browser plugin or a browser which is extremely subpar but imagine if that device in itself can give you the authentication mechanism right whatever device you're using and you extend that so uh and and the non-custodial nature also calls for uh that and along with interoperability calls for much better composable applications right so i as a developer, do not need permission from someone else to use a protocol, but rather build a system that is hyper integrated, hyper like converge, right? Uh, with with not having to worry as a to to how as to how I should secure a user's credentials or user uh, you know uh, private information it gives me a lot more power to create incredible applications. So the on ramp is is a challenge. Engagement is a challenge, and these two problems will get solved, and they are getting solved very quickly. And uh, once this is solved, uh, the user experience of using a decentralized system is significantly better than using anything centralized, right? Uh, yeah. Because uh, you know, uh, you know, for passwords, you need a password manager, right? And that's it. That's a big attack vector. With this, you choose where you want and how you want to secure ID. And that gives for a much broader set of options in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, you know, control, right? So I can choose my device as my secure mechanism, or I can use a ledger, or I can use, I have you know, infinite possibilities. And as we see more, more builders using these possibilities and, and innovating on them, you're going to see significantly better experience. I mean, you know, if you remove the on-ramp part, using Uniswap versus using a Kraken, right? Like, just the experience part is incredible using Uniswap. It's like a couple of clicks, I'm done, except for the MetaMask, yeah. right? Like, remove yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Let, let, let's dive into some of the technical aspects here. Because, I, like, I, like I said, I use the Kosh, you know, use the interface, or at least that, the application that you guys had. Uh, I'm sure it's been updated since then. I should probably check it out again. But um, I was always curious, like how it works under the hood, and you know, who are the network participants, and specifically, like the the. I'm curious, like who's running this infrastructure? You know, is it is it like mostly at home users, or or is it people who are deploying Akash on uh, on data center infrastructure? Is there a range of users and what are some of the challenges that come into you know, running a network of computer resources with different uptime and latency and connection speeds? And how do you manage all that? Great. So to understand Akash, you really understand the actors, different players, right? You know, it starts with the tenant, which is a user. And then you have a provider that you know, provides compute. Then you have an auditor, which essentially audits the providers. And then you have validators, which you know, secure the blockchain, right? 
uh, we all know what validators do. They secure, manage the blockchain, the governor blockchain, and delegators delegate tokens to them. And the uh, providers provide compute, but how do you know who's running, right? Your question, who's exactly providing this compute? There is a decentralized uh, uh, auditing mechanism where auditors actually do off-chain uh, verification and post those proofs on chain for someone like you to go and actually verify. So there's a section in your SDO file called audited attributes. So you can choose an auditor that you want to trust and get a, a web of trust mechanism through that uh, association. And, and it's very, very common to see uh, the actual provider uh, that's that's deploying. Uh, you'll see Equinix is on the roll, Cherry Servers. You have a ton of these like tier, I would say like tier five, tier four, tier three data centers. And then you have just companies with excess capacity, right? So we're seeing quite a lot of trend now with 37 signals, for example, which created Basecamp and you know, Ruby and Rails and whatnot. Uh, they themselves are bringing data centers in-house and with excess capacity for them is beneficial to deploy and um, to, to provide the computer Nakash, right? So companies are becoming their own uh, cloud providers as the technology gets commoditized in terms of containerization and realizing that, you know, you know, you can actually offset some of the costs by putting the computer in a car. So so trying to be sovereign at the same time, scaling is really what we offer for providers, right? Um, in the sense that, hey, you can, you know, actually use your compute, offer that, or when you want more, you can actually get back, get to the network. So um, with now with GPUs, we see a little different type of uh, user base. Uh, a big set of users or providers are are former ETH miners that were doing proof of work mining. Um, a lot of institutional miners um, that are, you know, hot days of the world of the clouds. I think they're, they're offering on our on our on our on our uh, on the network. They are, you know, just offloading the high-end GPUs that they have. And then we are going to see professional miners that were not institutional but have, you know, smaller colo capability or even home capability with not a latency sensitive, uh, uh, not capacity that's data center grade, but good for batch jobs, right? Like high okay. end use. So, so um, you're saying like you have cloud providers like like Equinox and and some smaller cloud providers that are deploying a cache on machines that they're that they're not utilizing. Is that right? Like they're lever leveraging a cache um, to essentially offer up their excess capacity correct excess capacity is what we're going for and okay, soon cool. you'll be uh we're also working with some of the hyperscalers to enable unused capacity for their pre-committed users so a lot of times when you are a company if you want to get you know access to some of the high-end resources you have to pre-commit a certain amount and more often than not you're not using this pre-committed uh you know yeah. amount so it's beneficial for these customers to put their computer in a cache and cloud providers like that because it's helping their customers and helping them sell their, their, their pre-commitments quicker. Uh, and, um, and especially in GPUs because you know, companies like Lambda, Lambda Labs, which is uh, quite popular in, in GPU cloud, their users are buying up the compute just to have access to the compute and they're not using them. So you know, yeah. that hurts everybody, right? So we're helping those, uh, essentially creating a secondary market, right? That's what Akash really is. But yeah. this unused cloud compute, which is, so basically you'll get the same exact thing you would get on Google or Amazon for much cheaper, right? So using Akash. 
Okay, um, see, I didn't, I didn't realize that this was. I so I, I saw, you know, I, I, I knew that there were some higher, some sort of actual cloud providers and data centers deploying Akash. I thought, I thought these were, you know, people that were deploying Akash on, like buying up some some server space and deploying. It. I didn't realize the data centers themselves, these companies themselves, were actually doing this. So. The so companies guys, are not doing some, it's the customers um, of the companies, right? Oh, the customers, so, right. I mean, okay. We may or may not have something in the works, but really what we are, yeah. what we are making is making it easy for these people to deploy onto Akash or provide to Akash, right? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, we will be making some really good announcements very soon. You'll, you'll notice the work we've been doing in this in this sphere uh, of like enabling, you know, pre-existing customers on the cloud to, to deploy on Akash. But uh, but yeah, uh, uh, that's a, that's a huge problem. I mean, it's a huge like pre-commitment problem, right? There are even banks uh, that approached us to a point where they, they could finance some of these companies to get pre-commitments, and in order to service their debt, put that in a cash. So there are lots of creative sort of like ways uh, people are looking at deploying a cash, and um, and soon I think our, our real like real vision is machine learning companies should own their own GPUs because that's ultimately yeah. where the, where the sovereignty stands and put their Akash you know, when they're not using it. Okay, interesting. Um, so so Akash then acts as a market for compute where actors can come in and out of the market, and because they're offering resources that they. Otherwise, wouldn't I mean it creates more fungibility in the compute market as a whole, where there, uh, where you know, you, you don't have this sort of fungibility between one provider and another provider, say between like Amazon and like Equinox or some other tier like OVH or whatever. Um, and and by leveraging a cost, you you sort of create this market of, of compute resources that can come in and out, and it's just a lot more fluid and fungible. Um, right. Yeah. It. it, it yeah, I I feel like I've got a whole new sort of view on Akash now after after explaining that. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because like a lot of the cloud providers we actually talk to, they acknowledge the problem with the cloud. They acknowledge costs are extremely high. They acknowledge that it's you know this, 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 the market forces are not very. Uh, I mean, the, the company may or may not act in the, in the best interest of the market. All of them actually acknowledge, and they're very pro-decentralization, surprisingly. A lot of the employees mm. that, that work at these large companies, uh, after talking to them, uh, we realize, even though our paper written five years ago talks about the, the industry as a problem and, and, and points out. But in order for Akash to be successful, we need participation from everybody. Akash is a market. It's a permissionless, decentralized market. Uh, and the mission for Akash is to ensure the tenant, the user, gets the best deal, right? No matter what cloud provider you are. And we have nothing against uh, like cloud, right? I mean, cloud, I think, has done a phenomenal, you know, phenomenal work in enabling, giving access to companies that couldn't get access to a data center. So cloud played an incredible role. And now we need to think about evolving the cloud to a super cloud, right? And in order for the super cloud to be successful, you need participation from the big, big guys, or else you'll just end up being this fringe, you know, dark network, right? So 
I think in a year or two uh, you know, time frame, you're going to see quite a lot of clicks participation. And things are just getting easier and easier and easier in terms of how a provider can come online and or and a tenant can use. And as that progresses, it's not hard to see how Akash becomes a secondary market uh, for, for cloud-grade compute. Yeah. So how does it... Um, like, how how do you... We, we talked about this problem earlier where resources can get reclaimed. Now, of course, that's an issue if you're you know running a website or something that's publicly facing. I mean, any 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 kind of compute, right? If you stop that compute while it's happening, you know that might uh, that might affect the user of that compute resource quite a bit. Um, you know, if we look at say cloud store or um, decentralized storage, there's often this replica this replication aspect to it so that the resources are spread across different nodes. So for example, in, in Arweave, um, the, the resources are, are spread across the network. And so there's this replication and that ensures that the resource stays online, you know, for a long period of time without any downtime. For compute, that's different. You you have like a VM, right? That sort of like has a runtime and and it is running some computation. If that resource goes on offline, it, it can't, or at least I don't think so, it can't just sort of pass that on to another machine without having provisioned it and everything so how do you deal with that is there like a is there a plans to create more robust sort of you know mesh of you know of, of compute that would um that would abstract away some of these uh some of these lower layers yes good question so, so if you think about it any resource on the cloud even non-cloud there's always a time the provider reclaims a resource it could be a year, it could be two years, it could be three years, doesn't really matter. There's always a time a provider will say they're going to shut down their instance. They have to retire it, right? So there's always a reclamation time for a resource on the cloud. It's just that it's not obvious how long the reclamation time is. It's not very clear. I think first thing we need to solve in Akash is uh, you're muted. Yeah, but it's also seamless for the customer. Like a, a customer doesn't see that resource coming offline because typically cloud providers will just move that resource to another like actual machine. Not really. No. PM, right? no, no, no. Okay. They give you a notice. They give you a. Okay. They give you like a six month notice a year, and they give you a good long reclamation time, and they okay. they can't just move data over, right? Because that could cause loss, a lot of damage. Because the redundancy and replication is very workload specific. Um, mm -hmm. Every workload has different ways of how they do replication. You know, we really not to get too technical, but it really comes down to consistency of the commits of the writes, right? Media consistency versus you know versus uh, you know eventual consistency determines how you replicate the data. So you can't just like take a data blob and put it while it's under processing. At rest is a different story, right? That's why storage networks have easier redundant mechanisms. Okay. The point is there's always a reclamation time. Only question is how long do you get? So Akash, that reclamation time is not very obvious. So the first thing you're gonna solve it is uh, providers advertising the reclamation time and sticking to the reclamation time. So you could get a notice saying that, hey, your resource will be reclaimed within a week, a week or a day or an hour, right? So, and then you can choose a provider based on the reclamation time. So something, if you're deploying a database and you want to be like, I want six months minimum reclamation because it's going to take me six months to move the database over to a new server, right? Or if you're running something like a machine learning, I would be like, hey, give me one hour. I just need to stop this job, reclaim to another job, right? When you know reclamation, you can actually automate the reclamation in a, in a much uh, easier way. 
uh, each uh, each transfer each transfers workload specific. And second thing is, if you're running mission critical, you always have to be redundant. It always had to be redundant. So I always have minimum a quorum for for me a three a set of three nodes minimum three to five to five to seven whatnot odd numbers. The way I I run my workloads is I have on a couch you can specify different providers in the SDL file. You can have three providers and running it usually three different regions and have a load balancer in front of it that'll do the do the routing uh, with the health check on the on the container. I know it's a little complicated, but it's typically how you run a production grade infrastructure. And from a, from a state standpoint, what I do if I have a Postgres server, for example, uh, depending on uh, the, the the storage, I mean Postgres, I would do a a master. Uh, sorry, new words. We would do a leader follower uh, style uh, style uh, replication model with the hot failover for the follower to to elect as a leader uh, using the quorum. In case of a uh, in case of a you know a, a fault, so what Akash does is it is extremely strict in enforcing these practices, and you have to do these practices. Be it centralized cloud or decentralized cloud doesn't really matter. Akash is very very strict. If you don't do them, you will fail, right? And that's happened to you and happened to a lot of people, and that causes churn. But the point is, it's extremely strict in enforcing these practices. Uh, cloud providers are much more lenient, right, in, in enforcing. But I believe in order for you to run a redundant system, you have to plan redundantly, and Akash is 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 unforgiving in that in the form. Like think of Akash as this system for builders that know exactly what they're doing, right? Yeah, uh, it is very very powerful, but it demands quite a lot of work from you, and that is a user experience problem or whatever you want to call it, right? And that that that's getting solved very quickly. Um, and uh, we introduced something called a console. Uh, if you uh, recently console or a Kasha network, and in that you'll notice topologies uh, as part of the deployment packages. So you can actually deploy a multi-leader or multi-follower, sorry, a leader follower topology. Uh, you know, that's application specific. Obviously, you could, you could do like you know workloads in DMZ. You can do all kinds of distribution and essentially packages the best practices as to how to deploy an Akash and, and, and packages that in a packageable, in a, in a deployable manner using a, a beautiful non-custodial interface, right? And so uh, so it's reclamation, you know, is not as foreign as you think. It's just, you know, it's just not obvious on different, uh, there you go. You can actually really you click on Akash on, on top, yeah, deploy now. Uh, and you'll see like an RPC node, validator node, sentry node, right? You'll, you'll start seeing like other topologies and you can actually uh, do, you know, yeah, you'll go ahead and do a live demo. <laughs> It'll be fun. Check essentials. This is a missing certificate. Connect your wallet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. No, this is cool. I'll have to check this out. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, running validators on Akash. And I, you know, so from from this year, it looks like it, it is possible to do that. But one of the one of the issues I think was that you know the keys, your 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 validator keys are effectively on someone else's machine, which you know is the case for for any you know for any validator that you're running in the cloud. But here, there's you know perhaps like another intermediary in the middle that is not the cloud provider. Um, how how does that work? Like. What's the best practice for running a validator on Kasha? Is it, is it a good idea? 
And how do you manage the keys? Right. So you use audited attributes. And some providers like Equinix that directly provide some providers like Cherry Servers that, that people love. Uh, they're direct providers. They're direct providers that can be verified using these attributes. So if you are concerned about someone being a middleman, you can use a direct provider. And second, you shouldn't really put keys in any provider, as a matter of fact. You should always have a mechanism to, uh, you know, to offset, right? So I would recommend using something like a remote center or hot crux or some of that, you know, where you actually sign the keys in a completely different system. Sure. That's not the system that's, you know, uh, that's processing your transactions, right? Sure, so but that most way, I think like a lot of validators just have like their signing key on the server and they're not using Horcrux. I mean, like a lot of validators I think do that. Right, right. Yeah. So you know, best practices, you know, remote signers. Um, you know, if you're concerned about middleman, use a direct provider, uh, Equinixes and Cherries, and we have quite a lot of direct providers. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so you know. But I would choose the more signers as, as a best practice for anything, as a matter of fact, in any, any secure setup. No, th th this is cool. I, I, I didn't know that like you had this this uh, this tool that just allows you to you know deploy an RPC. I mean, this is pretty useful, I think, like for the Cosmos ecosystem as yes, a whole yeah. to have this. Yeah. yeah, especially like bottom providers that are not profitable in these market conditions. It's very, very hard for a lot of yeah. these folks to pay the bills. And I think we should start considering something like Akash. Uh, Cherry Service is a great provider. You know, they're, they're directly providing compute for Akash. And they're, I think, running quite a lot of, uh, you know, Kava nodes on Cherry. I recommend them if you're thinking about deploying. Uh, we're also working with a lot of other direct providers to come online. HUD8 uh, 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 is a is an actual proof of work, yeah. work miner. And we have, you know, Web3 Cloud, which is very, very prominent in, um, in, uh, in in Ethereum ecosystem, a lot of these providers want to get to get into Cosmos and actually like looking at Akash as a way. Because another way to think of Akash is it makes a a average cloud provider uh, more professional because they have the tools now that yeah. is you know and the ecosystem along with it, right? So you have Fleek and all these amazing tools that are integrated into Akash, meaning these providers now now have all these tools for free that they don't have to, you know, develop, right? So a lot of these providers are looking to plug into Akash. And as Akash gets more, um, you know, more more mainstream and, and more, I guess, the world, as awareness grows, we're going to see this increase. And, and also, Akash is pre-incentives, so we have no incentives for, for providers. And that's going to change very soon. And we're being right. extremely careful on how we're looking at incentive design. We've looked at every possible incentive design and 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 we have to be uh you know uh, cautious in how we incentivize providers because so far it's been not optimal in the in the whole crypto space starting off with filecoin to heliums of the world and you look at a lot of these incentive models that are not really didn't deliver to the expectation yeah uh, so I'm, i mean Listen, if you can help me get delegations, I'm happy to set up a, uh, to figure this out and set up a validator, uh, an Akash validator on Akash. Um, and, Do uh, it. Uh, yeah. Meta. <laughs> <laughs> um, Although I, it's interesting. I think Akash doesn't really, uh, it's one challenge there, running Akash validator on Akash itself. Even though the validator, um, the provider does not depend on the blockchain to 
execute, they may terminate your lease if they don't get paid. So depending right. on when the provider is claiming their payment, if the blockchain is, is down, that could cause a non-payment or issue, depending on how the, how the provider is set up. I think some of them are like, okay, if you're not able to talk to the blockchain, don't do anything to the workflow, just keep running. So, yeah. But that could be could be an issue, especially during upgrades. Akash didn't have any unplanned uh, outages. Right. So yeah. far, we've been very, very lucky. And again, I don't want to... Uh, uh, jinx it. I mean, it's been live for over two years and it's been great. Uh, every outage we had was planned outage during during mainnet upgrades and usually that Cosmos, right? Um, yeah. You all know how that goes yeah. with validators, the dance we do every, every mainnet upgrade. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I, I think you can run an Akash validator in Akash itself. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. But 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 you could run a, a you could run any other validator on Akash. I guess like the issue oh, here absolutely. is like yeah yeah, yeah yeah okay cool absolutely uh, like, uh, with like with like you know a big challenge again is like paying with AKT with with yeah USDC payments that's coming very soon. I mean be very very obvious like hey cost like ten bucks a month or like very very clear cost advantage yeah 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 so so why did you so why does Akash use Docker containers and are there other VMs that is it possible to deploy with other VMs? Like I, I've heard from a, a team that you're familiar with uh, that like Wasm VMs are very useful because they allow you to uh, effectively know the the compute resource required before running, and they're also more efficient. And yeah, are there are there any other are there any plans to, to leverage Wasm, you know, either, either as like an alternative or a replacement to Docker? Or, yeah, what are your thoughts yeah. there? Yeah, I thought we looked into it very seriously. Uh, my background, I, you know, my, I've been an early contributor to the cloud infrastructure, container native uh, world, I mean, all the way from 2013. You know, I was, uh, 2013 was heavily uh, hypervisor world, right? So you had, VMs as the primary mechanisms to ship software into plus software, and yeah. they were mutable. So that was not great, especially with downtime, right? So I was hyper-focused on solving the parity problem. Uh, you know, essentially when you deploy something, how do you ensure the, the target machine has all the dependencies and containers happen to provide the best abstraction, right? So I was yeah. working on containers spree Docker using LXE. Docker came and made containers super simple. And Docker didn't have fault tolerance, so I was working on fault tolerance uh, using a uh, research paper published by Google called Omega. So I was actually working on uh, right, building this optimistic scheduler for Docker, right, or like containers. Uh, then Kubernetes came. The scheduler was not as great as a optimistic scheduler, but it worked and it gave orchestration and fault tolerance. And 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 you know, I've done some early contributions. Even my code, even. I, it's still currently used by Kubernetes and 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 Terraform and all this amazing software that came about. If you look at my GitHub, you'll have an idea of my contributions. Um, and um, so containers happen to have; they're not like the silver bullet, uh, you know, one as one would call them, but they have an incredible, incredible ecosystem that solves for a lot of problems, right? And Akash is not built to be container only you can plug in any you know any container sort of like uh you know not docker only you can 
for any container runtime. You can attach the container runtime. That really depends on the provider. And there's also another cool thing about Akash is you get this optionality. We'll get into that later. But but it's it's pluggable, right? And the and the white paper doesn't. White paper actually proposes for a other mechanisms as well as how you package them, how you can deploy. Yes, Wasm could be a package, but we looked at Wasm. Um, you know, some friends of mine created form companies to take Wasm mainstream, and a lot of them didn't really succeed because even though Wasm is great on 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 paper, it's extremely opinionated in terms of uh, how one should write an application, and that's that opinionation leads to a lot of uh, a lot of uh, friction for adoption, right? So I think the ecosystem hasn't gotten to a point where you can actually write full-fledged high-performance applications in Wasm. And because a lot of times it's like, well, if you're right, if you're thinking about Wasm mode, you're really thinking about serverless, right, or infrastructure. And serverless means heavily distributed. And at certain scale, serverless gets very, very complex and extremely, extremely expensive, right? Um, so there is now a trend of reverse serverless, which is like monolith applications. So like Amazon Prime Video actually wrote a paper like last week, I think, or, or week four, talking about how they saved 90% on their cloud bill. This is Amazon Prime Video talking about savings by switching from microservices architecture to a monolithic architecture, which is anti-WASM, right? Anti all these uh, patterns that we, we, it's very anti-pattern. And now people are questioning like, hey, is, is, is microservices the way to go? So, I mean, it really comes down to, it really, really comes down to what stage and what scale your operation, your workload is at, right? Like early days scale, when, when you're starting off something, it's very advantageous to do serverless because you don't want the complexity of managing infrastructure uh, and the cost of the complexity in terms of time exceed the cost of your, your, your going to market with the product, right? So uh, optimize for the least amount of work you need to do in order to get to market. So, you know, serverless becomes an amazing option. But at scale, when your problems had shifted from time to ship to actually save costs on infrastructure, like you're doing video streaming, you have to go monolithic and you have to go vertically integrated. There's really no other way because, and, and the reason why Apple products work really well is they're completely tightly integrated, right? So. Uh, in in case like Amazon Prime, where they could save ninety percent, because you you tend to uh, save quite a lot on serialization overhead uh, when it comes to uh, distributed systems. Because the moment you communicate from one system to another, there's always serialization deserialization that happens over over a line, right? And that cost surprisingly is extremely high. And you add verifiability and 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 resource like estimation cost on top of it that comes with Wasm. So every time you're like running, you're actually estimating the cost and you're optimizing accordingly. So your your overhead for compute is extensive. That cost that results in cost. So so yes. So it really depends on like what stage, right? If you don't have scale, that overhead is uh, is manageable. But at scale, that overhead becomes extremely extremely expensive. Hmm. Um, there is no one architecture. That's why it's very important to be general purpose. That's very important to be unopinionated. And Akash, even though it's painful at times when you see automatic replication systems that oh just move your workload wherever but it's like you're so opinionated in replication that you're going to limit your workloads uh, on type of what kind of replication now i don't want to throw 
fud or things about the project, but I, ha I have to mention this project called Flux, right? I mean, again, they're doing their thing, they, they have their opinions, they have their approaches, and let market be ultimate sort of like dis decider as to who wins. But the challenge that I, uh, you know, Flux, they really wanted a good user experience. So when you have a workload on Flux, it actually, you know, replicates across different servers and switches over automatically. Now the question is like, who decides what is the event for failover? Like, you know, like application health checks have to do the failover. So you, you tend to have, uh, you know, a failover when your database goes down, you, you create a failover event, right? So in order for failover to happen, you need to have an event bus. You need to have a, a custom health check mechanism. You need to have how the replication, how the database is switched over, right? What kind of, you know, for leader election happens, what kind of, you know, uh, how, how are you streaming the, the data, right? What kind of uh, atomic capabilities two databases are going to incorporate? What kind of consistency you're going to have eventual or, or immediate, right? Uh, that determines your, 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 so you need a lot of these as, I mean, you deploy distributed systems at scale in production, you need to be able to do these determinations that's, that, that's specific to your workload. You can't just, Put something on the cloud and expect that to replicate. Nobody does, yeah. that, right? Mm -hmm. So, so like, so that's why I'm not like a big fan of like opinionated models in general as a platform. I think platforms should be extremely un, un, unopinionated. Then, you, so you can have abstraction on top of it. Right, like people can build stuff on top, and it's 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 just more. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, I think this touches the, some of the earlier points that we mentioned as well, which is you know how do you just have the the simplest sort of uh, infrastructure platform that can allow people to build for these different use cases that build that would have built in this replication or build in you know the different VM support and things like that. Um, right, it's like Fleek. Fleek is doing only web workloads. They're really yeah. good at web workloads, JavaScript. That's their jam, and you, they know exactly how to use Akash to scale JavaScript. So, and they do the opinionation, they do the abstractions for you. Sure. They're on similar, right? Akash AI. In fact, we're we're doing this machine learning. Uh, verticalization that knows exactly how to use scalar machine learning workload and removes all the complexity of, of using a cache, right? So that is a higher level function in terms of um, these opinion, opinionated uh, approach or workflows as, as I like to call them. Yeah. So let, let's let's talk about the GPU stuff because I, I think that's what a lot of people uh, are are hoping to hear about. So, you know, we talked a couple of days ago, uh, you know, about like the state of the GPU market. And I think you know, I feel like you're someone who has a pretty good grasp on um, the state of the GPU market and, you know, how demand has been growing and, you know, is manufacturing keeping up with that demand. So, like, I'm curious to you know, maybe get your high level overview on what that market looks like right now, because it seems to be like a lot going on there. Yeah, it's always been a high demand. If you remember, Akash has been working on GPUs for a very, very, very long time. If you remember Super Mini and all these things that we we were we were trying, right? Um, uh, Super Mini was supposed to be a supercomputer for the home, so you can have your own own compute. So we've been, you know, exploring GPUs for over four years, I would say, right? Um, and now we finally have the capability. It's very, very hard to do an open GPU marketplace. Uh, so if you look at the space, th there are essentially uh, very few companies, NVIDIA, AMD, right, maybe Intel, that actually uh, make GPUs. And GPUs are extremely uh, powerful 
additional chips on top of the CPUs that adds acceleration. So for certain workloads, be it crypto mining or be it machine learning or, or be it graphics processing, GPUs tend to have these, these um, accelerated uh, you know, uh, chips to, to power these workloads, right? And when it comes to machine learning, NVIDIA happens to have the best GPUs because their on-chip memory is, is much higher than your typical AMD processors where you have you may have more powerful like clock speed, but your on-chip memory is small. And on-chip memory in the sense the memory on the chip itself that's separate from your actual RAM. And that's very important to train neural networks because neural networks are essentially this taking these large data sets and breaking them into this like this checkpoints by by going deep and you need and the latency between the chip and the memory needs to be as minimal as possible so nvidia happens to make the the chips with more memory uh, the most memory the, the most advanced chip which had which we call h100 right that's a purpose built high memory uh chip um uh which costs like forty grand or something. Like, costs like forty thousand dollars, and yeah. if you can get it, that is, it's it's like a Rolex or a, or, a, or a Ferrari, right? The MSRP is never the never the price you end up paying for the chip. You end up paying a lot more because the supply is extremely constrained. Uh, they're constrained by two main factors. First is they cannot make these chips fast enough, right? Um, because uh, you know. Uh, because the, the the supply chain for these chips really involves a lot more companies than just Nvidia can make them. So Nvidia is the one that makes the chips, but they get the machines from this company called ASML. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, uh, sorry, uh, machines. The, the Nvidia gets chips from TSMC or Taiwanese Semiconductor yep. Manufacturing Corporation that actually makes puts the chips on uh, the transistors on the chip. And then you get the software to make, uh, you know, and, and the machine is made by ASML, right? Or something like this, this whole supply chain. Uh, yeah. So a lot of very incredible choke points. And with COVID, it, it, it you know, the, the general chip shortage because they couldn't make these chips fast enough. And second, the, ex the demand uh, from AI just exponentially grew, right? To a point where, uh, AI research has been, there was a lot of hype at some point and then the hype died, right? And then there was a lot of research and innovation, uh, especially around this, this mechanism called transformers invented by Google really. Um, and, and, you know, a few, I think five years ago. And from transformers, we started seeing a whole range of large language models or LLMs, we call them. And uh, LLMs have amazing use cases. You have generative use cases, you have summarization use cases, you have classification, you have search, you have a lot of amazing things you could do with LLM. And one of the use cases happened to be generative use case. And so people could take, take a generative LLM and put a pre-trained model and create something called a generative pre-trained uh, transformer or GPT, right? So GPT-3 came out in 2000 by OpenAI. And a GPT and OpenAI, you know, it's been around for a few years and they built a, a user interface called ChatGPT on top of uh, GPT that they introduced uh, last year that obviously, you know, blew up, right? 
Uh, yeah. And they got 100 million users in, in uh, three months, in the fastest ever growing. So it's, it was a UI problem, not the technology. Technology has been there for, for a long time, and we've been following very, very closely. Uh, and, and that GPT-3 needed quite a lot of chips, uh, which are A100s. So for for the longest time, OpenAI the, the lower some, end chips, somewhat A one hundreds are high end chips, right? But they're but the, lower than the H one hundreds. H one hundreds are brand new. They came out just like okay. a few months ago. Okay. Uh, but right. GPT three and GPT four was trained on A one hundreds, I believe. Okay. Uh, GPT three point five at least. Um, so and there were, I believe, I mean, don't quote me on this. I think they're like forty five to fifty thousand. Um, A100s, as far as I know, in the in the world, uh, Amazon and and Facebook uh, has uh, access to about twenty thousand of these. So we know exactly where these are, and a lot of them are actually owned by the U.S. government in national lab- laboratories, you know, or state governments, right? Um, so, um, and uh, they're so so uh, so high demand. It's now impossible to get A100s on, on cloud. I mean. I think you can get A140 gigabytes, which is less powerful than the 80 gigabytes, but 80 gigabytes are just not available anywhere. Like even if you know the cloud provider, you can't get them. Uh, people will just buy them up, right? H100s yeah. are even more hard because they're about six times faster than A100s for certain type of applications, especially LLM training uh, applications. So Elon Musk bought about 20,000 of these, right? Like or 20 or 10,000. Any company that's doing anything serious with LLMs uh, are buying up these chips. So are people really, like selling futures for these? Like are, are people like hoarding them or they are arbitrage? You know, is there are, some of this like coming. speculation, market manipulation yes. going on? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. There is there's a whole whole ecosystem, whole supply chain, a new players on supply chain now with uh hoarding on to H one hundreds. Um like there's something called distributors in the middle. So you have you know, you have your chips and you have these server manufacturers like Dell, Super, Supermicro, and a whole lot of them. They have a whole lot of supply and you only get H100s if you buy a server from these people. So it's like, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of stuff here. If you can get access to H100s, get, get them, right? You can actually yeah. sell them in, in, in secondary markets. I don't know how much they're going on eBay, but people are- I saw one on eBay e- for like 40 grand. Yeah, like there was one on eBay. I saw price, one, I yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very obvious, right? And and guess what? When you have when you're sitting on these chips, when you're not using them, you have a place to go now to to to, to put them. And and when you have a when you when you have a buyer, you take the chip and put it back, right? So, you know, sell sell it to the buyer. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of like this is incredibly high demand. And now with geopolitical scenario not looking so great for for uh, globalization, there is a reverse globalization. There's a lot of protectionism right now happening, um, and in uh, in the main reason why Chinese Chinese are prevent are not uh, sorry. There's export controls on these advanced microprocessors now. Biden signed an executive order about nine months ago, preventing any advanced micro micro uh, chip sales to china and russia and and iran obviously and any american from working for these companies for microprocessors so overnight with a signature i think biden killed the entire chinese gpu industry and uh, so there is extreme uh, export control on these chips it's very very hard to get them 
Um, I think they're even harder than getting a gun in, in UX. <laughs> you know, well, right? Does it, does it, is that, that's not a high bar to cross, yeah. But so I, what, I, what's, the, what, what's the, like, biggest problem? Like, so, so you guys are running a GPU testnet, right, currently. Uh, what's so different about providing GPUs, you know, as opposed to providing just generalized, you know, CPU uh, infrastructure that necessitates running like a dedicated test net for this and how is that rollout going to look like once it starts hitting mainnet? Yeah, so it's a new type of resource on the Akash network and GPUs are very device specific whereas CPUs don't really care much about what kind of CPU you have. You may, you know, you know, you may have say on AMD or, or Intel but they all work pretty much you know, the same, right? GPUs are very different. Your application is very GPU specific. Some applications are written only to work on H100s or A100s or like very GPU specific, right? So they're anti, uh, uh, they're opposite to the whole notion of a container where you can build one and run in anywhere. So unfortunately with GPUs, you have to build a container to run on that GPU. So it's, it's a very different way of deploying, right? It doesn't, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't give the homogeneity you get with GPUs. And the GPUs and Kubernetes are extremely new. Uh, NVIDIA is the only company that has some degree of, uh, uh, you know, some degree of uh, adoption and some degree of, like, good software, but others don't really have the kind of penetration. And if you were to, and another contrarian view, I think you had to put NVIDIA as a software company, not a hardware company. That's my contrarian take. Uh, NVIDIA's innovation is really software, the CUDA yeah. uh, SDK that they came out 10 years ago. That's why they're really good with AI. No one else yeah. can come. NVIDIA is good at software. Um, I, would, and, I mean, I, I don't think that's such a contrarian view. I mean, I, I have like a pretty summary or like understanding of this market, but my understanding is that NVIDIA really excels at the software and like they've really created a huge mode around that and sort of, um, yeah, I mean, most people think NVIDIA is GPUs, right? But yeah, anyone can make GPUs. I think the software that they built. Yeah. Uh, not anyone, but anyone that's, you know. But not... they also have this really tight integration with, um, with, with the chip, right? So coming back to your analogy earlier about Apple and how that, you know, the software and the hardware need to work together. Mm -hmm. I think they've also like done that well. really well. And, you know, to the same extent that you might consider Apple also to be kind of a software company, right? Because they're building really good software that, serves a purpose yeah. and experience right. but building the hardware that is able to deliver that experience i think you know the the software is the interface with 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 Correct. the person that's using it um right. yeah Correct. yeah i mean any i mean they're much better phones than iphone right like androids a lot of androids better than iphone but the the cohesive vertical integration uh yeah. is done so well with apple products and media products that's why they shine nvidia is the apple of chips <laughs> you know yeah so, um, so is Akash going to be providing like raw access to this GPU power, or, or are you going to be providing access to the models? Uh, yeah, what's that going to look so, like for, for users? Akash network is going to be unopinionated, non custodial always. So it's going to be a raw access to be on it. 
But Overclock Labs is building Akash AI, right, which is an abstraction on top of Akash that's optimized to run models in a very simple way. So we take right, the okay. user experience first approach, user first approach, and one click deploy stable diffusion, control net, you know, llama, alpaca, whatever model you want. And we're going to be extremely aggressive. We're actually working with uh, with uh, integrating Hugging Face. So any model on Hugging Face, you should be able to deploy on Akash. Any model on Langchain, these are very popular machine learning application, uh, you know, packages or, or platforms, you should be able to click deploy on Akash within like a couple of clicks and pay using credit card. Now, of course, credit, credit cards are not are, are custodial, right? So they, they're not non-custodial. Uh, that component overclock is building to specifically focus on machine learning developers that are not crypto uh, native, right? For them, I tried to onboard a few of them in like multiple hackathons and that was the worst thing ever <laughs> to go there Go tell them to get, go give your mother's passport and crack in and get your KYC done and wait for a couple of days to get the tokens. It's just so bad, you know, to yeah. the whole onboarding. And when you talk to them about Kepler, they're like, well, what is it, a browser plugin? And they freak out because nobody wants to install browser plugins. I mean, you'd be surprised as to how anti-browser plugins the whole world. Right? So there's just uh, quite a lot of these barriers uh, for folks to see the value of Akash from a machine learning that's not crypto native, and Overclock is uh, solving that problem. One, Overclock is one of the companies solving, but specifically focused towards machine learning applications. So, you know, I I, I got I was talking to someone earlier about this interview, uh, and and uh, it's like, oh, what should I ask Greg? And and uh, the I think this is a kind of a good question to to, to wrap up on. You know, Akash is is essentially like a marketplace for for distributed computing, and and you guys are uh, offering now like different types of compute resources with general CPUs and um, and GPUs. But how are you thinking about Akash over the long term, and um, you know how do you how do you plan on transitioning to whatever the next big thing will be? Right, the next big computing. Um, you know, resource that will be in high demand if it's not GPUs or, or CPUs, you know, maybe it's like, you know, quantum compute resources or some other type of, uh, of, of compute resource that might be like at a different abstraction level than what we're used to. Um, yeah. What's the long-term vision here? Very cool. Thank you for the question. So the, you know, the first major milestone for Akash network is parity in the cloud. So right now, Akash is still, from a capability standpoint, it's not equal uh, with, with Amazon or, or, or Google, right? We need to get to parity. That's going to be hyper-focused uh, on the roadmap. Post-parity is how we evolve, right? right? So post-parity, uh, imagine having 10,000 providers in every city of the world, right? GPU, CPU, speed, whatever resource. Imagine being able to provision a workload uh, that follows your user no matter where they go. So, and you have a future where you have computers essentially are mobile. If you think about a robot or a self-driving vehicle or any of these devices, the compute is at the edge. And in order for edge compute to function, um, you need uh, you know to solve the communication cost problem in the sense how long the packets take to travel between the edge device and, and the cloud, right? Uh, the, the device that's in motion and that the device that's static, right? You always need this like communication. And, and at that point, the only way to achieve that is the massive distribution of compute all across. And with an incentive model for these providers to provide computer in 
business, right? Uh, at scale, um, and 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 in and, and and the possibilities are limitless. I call it innovation beyond imagination because now you have a network that's extremely agile, extremely high performance the edge. And second thing is Akash is community uh, managed, community built projects. We have about two hundred and eighty contributors. Uh, out of them, seventeen folks are employed by Overclock Labs. If you look at some of our repos like Akash Console. Akash Network slash, uh, you know, GitHub slash Akash Network slash console, you look at the pull requests, nine out of 10 pull requests come from outside Overclock Labs. It is a community built. And it's very critical that this, com and, and we are adding about 15 developers building on Akash every month or something. We're growing really fast. Ever since we came out with the announcement of like completely radically open source uh, on our blog in uh, earlier this year, we had an amazing participation, right? So now, Everything about Akash is said in the public, right? Uh, the product, the roadmap, the features, the priorities, all that is said in the public. All those meetings are published, publicly posted, transcribed, summarized, everything done, right? And it's very, yeah, it's very really impressive, us, by the way. Yeah. Very important for us to expand that because that is what is going to get us to move faster in the future. Yes, you know, you can go faster by yourself in the short term, but you can go further when you're together with, 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 with the community. And that's why, and that's why open source software at a certain scale moves so much faster. You look at Linux, you look at Kubernetes, you look at any of these these projects that hit a certain inflection point and started really getting into this community uh, contribution. That's where Akash is getting there, right? Uh, once they take off, it becomes an unstoppable force and becomes a standard. Now you don't look at any other container orchestration that Kubernetes is even ridiculous. I mean, everybody tried at one point to have their own container orchestration, right? Uh, you don't look at any other, uh, for the most part, operating system that's, that's not Linux, right? And you don't go try to rebuild Linux. I mean, there were a lot of different operating systems before Linux, right? So, and you have this inflection point uh, from a community contribution standpoint. Once upon achieved, it becomes unstoppable and becomes uh, it becomes the global standard. That's what Akash is going towards, right? Uh, and at scale, we will have massive distribution of compute. Uh, with, with options that, that are impossible to get on the cloud. Today, Akash is already offering certain, you know, certain capabilities where you have NVMe storage or if you wanted, uh, you know, a, a different runtime for your Docker. You don't want Docker if you want, uh, you know, there are all kinds of cool, like, experimentation when it comes to runtimes that, that are happening. Some providers want to provide that as an option to the user. So you're already seeing this, like, branch off, uh, between what you can get on the cloud to what you can get on Akash. With H100s, we end up being the only cloud provider to have H100. So you're already starting to see the branch off. It's no longer just a alternative cloud that's cheap. It's now the cloud that you can get resources on that you can't get on the, on the traditional cloud, right? And that's that's going to be the future, right? And, um, uh, and, and it's very, very important for us to ensure that there's a healthy foundation uh, that is building, uh, both for decentralization and also evolution. The way I look at decentralization is yes, you know every protocol when you look at it from a technology standpoint uh, is decentralized at the, at a higher level. But you start peeling layers, right? You peel the layer, you see governance, and you see centralization of the governance, and then you peel enough layers, you see, uh, you know, ultimately it comes down to who's actually building the software. That's the biggest attack. Right? Once that builder is attacked, the software stops evolving. It's very very important for that. Uh, that layer to be secure and that layer to be uh, you know fault tolerant and that's why akash is built by community builders overclock labs disappears today akash will still be 
working. And we're working very hard to have this on-chain, you know, uh, fund uh, to, to you know, sustain the development, right? We call it public goods funding, right? Hmm. So a lot of the stuff we're working on will, will, will come out more publicly very soon are geared towards ensuring that the sustainability when it comes to evolving software. So that is our biggest more, I think, community is, is, is the key, right? Uh, yeah. And that's sure. something money can't buy. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up here, just uh, a few more minutes, I want to open it up for questions in the audience. There's a couple of questions here. And one that I had also listed uh, is, you know, how do we deal with, you know, material? I mean, here we're talking, the, the person's asking about censorship. Is it possible to host not, not safe for work pro projects on Akash? My, my question was more around the, the topic of illegal content. I know that like with... Um, are we there's like governance mechanisms there to limit and, and take down um, illegal contents, things like CSAM and stuff like that? Uh, are, are there mechanisms in place on Akash to deal with this sort of issue? Yes, there is. Uh, there is active conversations on content moderation happening on Akash, right? So content moderation is a very sensitive subject. Um, the well, you know, we need free speech at the same time. We should protect people. Right. There's actual bad actors abusing the system. And we saw that happen with SIA, and that led to the fall of SIA, right? So it's very, very important to have uh, this mechanism. And we are looking at certain ways. If you go to github.com slash akash.network in community, there's a group called uh, SIG Moderation, a special interest group. And if you click on that, you'll see all the progress we've made. Um, there is a notion of the... Pro Ultimately, it comes down to the providers, right? Providers are liable, right? If you're, if you're a provider hosting some something illegal, you you are required by law to take it down, and you need yeah. to have a DM, DMCA mechanism to to protect digital rights. You have all kinds of like the legal sort of like frameworks that are already established depending right. on the jurisdiction you're, you're based on. So we are going to make it easy for providers to comply, and it's very important, right? And there's uh, if we don't make it easy for comply for them to comply, they get in trouble. So it's very important yeah. for us to protect the providers. So Akash as a protocol level will never censor. It's not built that way. You cannot censor. Yeah. But providers ultimately are the gatekeepers and they have to um they have to make sure that you know they're able to serve, you know, and protect uh people that they are serving, right? So yeah. Uh, so like generally what happens is um you know we have Okay, like all not all content is equal, right? So you have from a sensitivity, you have something that have different political biases, right? We all saw what happened with with Amazon taking down parlor or things of that nature. With Akash, if you have something like that, as long as there's a provider that still considers this not a not as bad as child pornography and they want to serve that, that's fine with them. Akash will still function very well. But if yeah. every provider it's bad they're going to you know not serve they choose they have complete liberty uh, as to choose who they want to serve right yeah i mean universally bad uh, universally front fun they won't serve so as long as there's a single provider running on a cache the workload will get served and that provider is ultimately liable right so yeah you know and if if, if the authorities think deem that provider to be malicious and they you know there's an ip address they you know the provider can be easily tracked so yeah. We're not going to end up in a scenario where we're going to have a lot of illegal content and providers not, you know, providers are going to know about the content and they have to take them down. Um, and uh, that's how 
network kind of like self sort of like regulates itself without having a, a police or a someone watching them from from the outside standpoint. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, and then one more question that actually came from the Telegram group uh, was with regards to you know conversations that you know you guys have had with I think Google or Microsoft over the years, and um, you know do you do do they see you as competition? And in you know, or in general, you know, what are large cloud providers? What do they think about Akash? Are they, you know, do they consider them as potentially like a path to, like a a, 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 a suitable path to offload some of their excess capacity? Or, yeah, well, what's the state of, you know, your your, yeah, your uh, workings with large cloud providers? I don't think I've ever said anything about Microsoft. I don't know where Microsoft came from, but. I can publicly say, uh, you know, this is based on tweets from employees of these companies that I'm talking about. I mean, this, if you go to my Twitter, you'll see a lot of tweets from folks at Amazon, the head of blockchain, folks at Google, you know, uh, the, the, the Web3 divisions of Google, they all are talking about Akash. They all think Akash is a critical piece of the future of the cloud. And this is public information, by the way. Right. I mean, yeah. Of course, I'm not going to go into details as to what exactly is functioning. Sure, sure. People can look at your Twitter. Yeah. Right. But, you know, if you look at my Twitter, I mean, I, I, I keep retweeting tweets from these folks talking about Akash and they're really excited about it. Uh, and uh, I mean, they, they all acknowledge, I mean, cloud has a massive problem when it comes to efficiency of users of resources. Right. And they all acknowledge. And these companies are realizing Web3 is the future. They have established teams for Web3. Uh, to to make their companies more Web3. And it's very, very aligned when it comes to Akash, right? So a big uh, a big challenge is like improving liquidity or efficiency for their existing users when it comes to like prepaid customers. I think they look at Akash as a way, a solution for that problem. And second, GPUs are very hard to come by. Now, everybody wants to give GPUs to their users, just, just, just can't, right? Because there's no way to get them. And all these GPUs are just locked away everywhere. So Akash is unlocking this like massive underutilization, underutilized resource, especially for high-end GPUs, H100s, right? So you, in the future, you, you wouldn't be surprised to see an Amazon user using a GPU on Google, paying using their Amazon account, um, and actually you know, not leaving Amazon. Because today, they, you know, they are, if a user cannot get GPUs on Amazon, they leave Amazon, and they go to someone else. So now Amazon has a way to retain the user and you know, satisfy the need by satisfying the needs and actually work with a com competitor. And Akash is the bridge. Right? And that's exactly what we want. Akash is market focused, where these companies are user focused. And that's very, yeah. very important. Right? So no, that Akash makes so much sense. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, not, you know, it's going to be very, very clear in a few years when you, all these integrations come out. And we are not in the business of announcements. We are in the business of integrations. We don't announce anything unless it's actually integrated, right? So, and because of the transparent and open nature, all these conversations are public. So if you actually participate in our working groups, uh, we have meetings almost every week on like where the product is going and we're very, very active. If you're not able to, there's also recordings if you want to have time and it's also summarized recordings, right? So, so you can go through a lot of that stuff and get an idea as to who you're working with, but you know, we're an open source, open community. Uh, and uh, we haven't had any conversation with Microsoft, just to be clear. Uh, yeah. I don't, uh, I, yeah. 
I, I, I know they have good Web3 teams, but I just don't, uh, for some reason, haven't, you know, interacted with many of them. It's mostly the, the you know, number one and number two, uh, Google sure. and Amazon. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, thanks for sticking sticking around for so long. It's, I really enjoyed this conversation, learned a lot about the cash. And uh, we had quite a few people on the live stream. Uh, certainly, it, it, this was probably amongst our you know top ranking episodes in terms of people that joined the live stream. So you bring a crowd, sir. Uh, Thank you. So thanks, awesome. thanks again. And hope to see you at Nebula Summit. Yes, looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Greg.